This is episode 395 of the AWS podcast, released on October 4th, 2020. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Alicia here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by a very special guest. In fact, one of the most special guests. I'm joined by Dr. Werner Vogels, who is Vice President and CTO here at Amazon. Welcome to the podcast, Werner. Thank you, Simon. Great to be here. You guys have done a great job with the podcast. So uh, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. Well, it's, it's great great to have you on here and, and probably long overdue. I think we were reminiscing just before I uh, turned on the mics about your, your early visits to Melbourne back in 2011 and 2012 and sampling some of our good coffee and great eateries. Uh, I know it's a place <laughs> you like to visit. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that one alley in, in Melbourne with yeah. all the coffee shops on there, magic. Beautiful. Best, Beautiful. Best, coffee, best coffee outside of Europe. <laughs> we'll arm wrestle about that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Verna, obviously, we're, you know, we're recording this um, post-COVID. And so uh, as, as, a, as no, a person post. who's, well, or during COVID, I guess, or post, post it sort of happened <laughs> and the world changed. Um, but, but really, I mean, you, you've, you've made a, a, a life really of traveling around the world, talking to people, learning from customers, et cetera. You spend a lot of time on planes. And, and now you're working from home for an extended period, which is probably new for you. So maybe share with us what, what you've been doing at home that we can maybe steal from. It could be newsletters you're reading or music you're listening to, but give us give us some insight into the uh, the world of Werner. Well, I can I can tell you enough about the world of Werner. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the one the one thing if you if you the one thing that I had already been doing while I was on the road uh, a lot for the past years is to religiously set one part of a day aside. So let's say one afternoon a week to do some learning. Uh, to really uh, to switch off your email, to switch off your phone, and and whether it is you pick up a new mobile SDK that the AWS team has built, or you want to try out how Neptune works, or you know um, any of the other technologies that we have, or just you know work on a new language. Or um, I, I think that as an um, as an executive, as a technology executive, um, one of the most important parts in in for me for your the uh, Amazon leadership principles is uh, dive deep. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. How, how can I have a conversation with engineers about whether Rust or, or any of the other languages are a good choice for a particular project if I've never written a line of code in it? And I don't need to become production writing code, but I need to know, I need to have a feel in my fingers about what this technology is about. So and that can be reading a bunch of documents, it can be writing some code, but you need to continue to evolve yourself and to continue to learn because there's always so much stuff going on in our world. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. It's, it's good to see that, that, I guess, that example of it's lifelong learning, isn't it? It's like we can't stop doing that. No, no, no. And then especially, you know, I mean, I don't know how many new features and, and services we launched last year, but even for us, that's very hard to catch up. Keep keep up. Unless you start setting time aside to consciously make sure that you uh, that you know what's going on. Uh, there might be insecurity or it might be maybe an ML or it might be new things that the application load balancing team is doing. All of these things, I think, as a technology executive, you should still be able to get your hands dirty. 
Agree, agree. And when you're doing your learning out of interest, because you are famous for your band T-shirts, um, what what are you? <laughs> are you a music listener while you do this, or do you go silent? And if you're a music listener, what do you listen to? Well, you know, I, I like the, um, of course, being Dutch, I like most of the house and and the electronic music that comes out of yeah. Europe. Yeah. Um, after all, it's part of my DNA. Even though being sixty, I still can dance. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> uh, no, some some heavy trends maybe. If it's later in the night, you know, there's there's these periods sometimes when at eleven at night you start doing something and suddenly it's four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, music like a, a, a band like Extra Extra Belt, which is this heavy drone-like trance music, mm-hmm. really gets me into the mood to really. Uh, Keep on working. Nice. It is. I agree. It is nice when you look up at the clock and go, "How did it get to that time?" Good things have happened. Oh no! I need to get up because we need to do this podcast. (laughs) This is true. This is true. No, 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 no. I was uh, I was in early night also. So, so you get to talk with uh, you know other CTOs and developers all across the world. What are you hearing and seeing in your world at the moment? And what are some of the issues that people are facing from a technical standpoint, or maybe a a business perspective, and what are some lessons we can take from that? Well, of course, we've got millions of businesses running on our platform. We, we see every possible scenario. But I think probably the two extremes are, or, or on one hand, of course, with all the digital services becoming crucial, crucial operations for everyone. Um, there, there's this group of our customers, let's say, in... in, in uh, productivity apps or in remote working or telemedicine or you 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 name it that are that have been exploded in the past month and so all of these customers you know are really revisiting their architectures to understand whether they are actually scaling in the most effective way yeah i mean what these customers want is that the economies of scale should help them become way more successful um, let's say at higher scale, instead of having to pay exactly the same amount of money that they always have. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, of course, there's a whole group of our customers that are in dire straits. Yeah, and uh, think about the airline industry, hospitality, yeah. Yeah. Uh, those areas, and all the industries that are sort of tagged off, 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 off of that. So we're working with quite a few of those customers to actually do more or less the same thing, revisiting their architecture to make sure that they have really tight control over cost. You know what I would call cost-aware architectures. Yeah, so where you as a business person have a number of knobs to turn and you can make a decision what the business would like to invest in this to get a better result. Uh, and a, a simple example there might be, we all know that at lower latency, in, in let's say commerce operations, lower latency on your web pages drive better conversion. Uh, and so it becomes like a business decision if you want to go from 1.7 seconds or your 99 percentile to, let's say, 1.2, how much more you need to invest. But then becomes a business decision, not something that the engineers at architecture level have decided. And uh, I've seen another number of other customers that are, are going into, uh, let's say, that had already, for example, planned some migrations, lift and shift. Yeah. Uh, but, but and they would do, be doing lift and shift because of the, the speed of execution. They really needed to get it done. But now they're becoming in sort of a period of time where they do have some extra time. And so what they're doing is doing a re-architecture instead of just doing a lift and shift. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's sort of the patterns that we are seeing. Some of our customers have just 
sped up their uh, migration. Like like TUI in Germany, the large um, the large uh, airline and, and um, certification agency, um, they've reduced their cost by 50% by just doing a immediately starting to migrate all the things that they wanted to migrate and actually had planned to take a year. They've now done it in two months, reduced their cost by 50%. Wow. And so we see a lot of these customers doing these kind of things. And that, that's sort of a, a traditional, regular customer base that was always there. They really may want to make use of scaling down or scaling up to actually meet them. But I think there's another part to, I think that got, gets more and more exposed during these, these days. One of the other advantages of using AWS is the ability to move fast. Yeah, now suddenly, and so they're realizing that there's a number of new areas, a number of new applications, a number of new systems that they could be building, and they can build it really fast if they just make use of all of the AWS services. And that's definitely a pattern I see as well. And there's lots of things in and around COVID, for example, that uh, that was really that's that really shows how fast people can get things in their hands. Uh, you, you've had it in in Australia there, probably with the, the, the tracing app. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen that somewhere else in many other places as well. Oh, there's a very cool story, actually, in terms of moving fast. There's a bunch of students at the at the Politecnico di Milano, and, and so it's it, Italy's on lockdown. And, and you probably have seen these these uh, scenes on TV where the only reason where people were allowed to lose, leave their house was to go to the grocery That's store. That's right, yeah. And they had these long lines in front of these grocery stores, sometimes two or three hours, really increasing the risk of infection, basically. Mm. So here's these five, five students that has never written one line of code on AWS. And they're distributed to not to get there in a room. And so by using... You know, all the AWS tools, including, you know, API Gateway and, and all the other things. Within three days, they had built a, a complete app that where people could crowdsource the length of the waiting lines in front of grocery stores. So before you would leave your house, you check the app, you see where's the shortest line, and that's where you go. And so this seems like a small and silly kind of a small, not necessarily silly, important, but there seems small applications, but they've been built in three days by people that had never, ever built anything on AWS. And I think that's sort of, uh, that's really motivating to see, um, you know, how people are building crucial applications in very short time. So in the UK, for example, they build an app called Corona Friend. Yeah, this is from your neighborhood. Who are the people that are actually looking for help? Wow. Yeah, they may be elderly, they may not be able to leave their house. And so there's a Corona event. So you use Corona event to say, hey, can someone do my groceries for me today? Yeah, and so these seems like small kind of applications, but they were built in in literally in a week. And they're so, very they're very meaningful too. They're very meaningful to people's lives oh, and their absolutely. experience. And because they're they're low cost, they're quick to build, they scale, they go away yeah. when you don't need them. It it just fits the bill. Yeah, absolutely. And so it, it's it's really interesting to see. Uh, yeah, take for example the the Italian kids. Uh, I think on day one they had a hundred thousand customers. Wow. Yeah. That's and so yeah. and that's that's the other side. Yeah. yeah? Um, and and there's there's in the UK there was a great example. Um, I've been watching here a lot of British TV, and one night there was a uh, it's a big charity event called Comic Relief. Yes. Yeah, and that's basically the money of all those goes into a big fund for it, whether it's the NSS or, or any other research around COVID. Um, so this is the ideal AWS application. It only needs to work for one night and it can never, ever go down because you're taking donations. Yep. 
has to work. Uh, and it needs to be fast, it needs to work, it needs to be reliable, it needs to be ultra-scale. Yeah, and as such, uh, and of course, I, they built it on AWS. It had to work, it worked perfectly. They took all the money, there was never a hiccup. And so those are the kind of examples, sort of like the basic examples around AWS, like massive scale, massive scale down, or you know, moving fast, um, building apps from day one in three days, but actually also taking security in, into consideration at the same time. Yeah, and so all these things you can do in AWS, believe me, 10 years ago, this would have cost you half a year to develop these applications. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been it would have been crazy, and I think the, the you know the elasticity part has has been really fascinating because you know we've been talking about elasticity since two thousand and seven. I mean, we we just you know it's it's core to what we talk about when it comes to cloud and AWS. But what we've seen is is as you, as you touched on those two extremes, you know, government systems that have been pushed to the limit have to go big and service entire countries, so scale up, and then those those customers who their business has shrunk and they need to scale down and, and shed cost very quickly. So the ability to go both extremes, I think is a, is a fascinating and, and powerful opportunity for customers, which is then driving them to say, well, let's, let's do that. Let's be like that all the time. You know, when, when times are good, we can take advantage of that. And when times aren't good, we can sort of shrink down as, 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 as necessary. Yeah, but they do see actually in in the last category those people that actually are scaling down because you know their business basically is either non-existent anymore or at a very low burning point. I do see them being interested at the same time to use this time as an opportunity, an opportunity to whether it's review their architecture, whether it's starting to think about new applications for your for your customers. Yeah, one of the things that I I, I, I have been talking quite a bit with with a number of our customers about is that um, you know, the consumer state of mind has changed dramatically mm. in the past mm. months. Yeah. Anxiety is rampant, and rightfully so. You know, we're opening up countries, we see massive spikes in corona happening again. There's lots of people that have tremendous anxiety about the future, and whether it's health-wise or economic-wise. So what kind of applications can we start building or what kind of engagement with your customers if you know that that is the mindset of your customer? Yeah, if you're a financial services institution, institution, what kind of features or services or, or apps can you start building that really address the, let's say, the economic uncertainty at, 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 at the moment? So, How so can you help your remove some of the anxiety of your customers? Mm, so there's an opportunity to invent in, the, in that space. And and not yeah, just yeah, yeah. not just do what you've been doing, but do new. Yeah, especially because I mean we've never been in this situation where there was you know worldwide pandemic and and the anxiety that comes with it and the dangers and and how how people feel lost and lonely. Yeah, and so it's an opportunity to start building digital systems that really address the human need. And and what are you seeing in terms of human needs? You know, from a healthcare perspective, obviously. Um, we've been investing a lot in health-related services with, with Transcribe Medical, et cetera. What, what are you seeing in terms of what, what customers are doing in this space? Oh, that's all over the place. So and I'd like to sort of place that in two different, two different buckets or maybe three. One of them is just purely the research that is happening around COVID. Mm. Yeah, just trying to understand the disease. Just, um, you know, um, and so... For example, we've worked with the World Health Organization. We built their data lake where all research data from all over the world related to COVID is being placed and then made available to all researchers around the world for free. Yeah, and then there's, there's just many more of these kind of uh, uh, places. For example, 
you know, the, the Office of the Humanitarian Affairs of, of the UN makes use of a data exchange to understand where, where people are migrating to and make use of machine learning to truly understand what the migration routes that are happening at the moment. How, how can they be, and we have control over it, so you can also control the spread of COVID. Um, of course, there's a lot of telemedicine happening. Yeah, yeah. And so in, in the UK, uh, all of this have, uh, uh, these companies are all on fire, all launching new features and services that our customers are asking for. So whether there's my clinic uh, in, in the UK or an interesting one is Kiwi out of Sweden. Now, all of those, uh, the telemedicine world is, is tremendously heating up, of course. Uh, but also working, for example, with uh, with the NHS, uh, the National Health Service in the UK, to build a complete response platform for them. And, and we've been working with them using machine learning to do capacity planning. Yeah, so how should they predict on the current patterns that we're seeing what certain, where, where, where capacity may open up and where you should be moving patients to, to make sure that, you know, you can have a, an optimal usage of the capacity that the NHS has. And for the rest, you know, there's, there's, there's disease modeling happening, there's, there's uh, drug discovery, all of those things really purely targeted at the disease itself. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, there are all the other areas that are in, impacted. Uh, we, we're very fortunate that um, a number of years ago, we uh, instantiated the AWS disaster response team. Uh, this is a team within AWS that is purely responsible for looking for disasters around the world, and whether those are natural disasters like, like typhoons or hurricanes or earthquakes or, or, or things like COVID, like pandemics, um, where immediately this team proactively reaches out to our customers and tries to uh, look at sort of what, what, what are the, the challenges that our customers in this particular area are facing, what can we do, how can we help, how can we take some of the burden away, for example, by giving credit or other type of support, and, and really working with, with the customers proactively actively. Now, we were set up for that, and we've done that around a number of other uh, uh, disasters. And as such, we were well prepared um, to support our customers here and proactively reaching out to them. Also, we have experiences that we've seen in other disaster times. Yeah, and so, yeah. customers really enjoyed that. And so, and, until recently, you've been traveling the world, but obviously not at the moment. And and this is via, via your show, Now Go Build, which I must say is one of the most beautifully shot programs I've ever seen. Tell us about <laughs> what it is and, and more importantly, who and what it highlights. Uh, oh, the highlights, I think there's many. But um, let me, so the goal of Now Go Build, was that, so I've been traveling the world and talking to lots of customers, both enterprises as well as startups. Um, but one thing that I, I started to notice over time is that there's lots of uh, of our, 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 let's say, startups that are building consumer-based services. Yeah, that are really focused on uh, maybe video streaming yeah. or uh, spam filtering or whatever, you know, useful things, but not very tech-oriented or, con- or consumer-oriented. There's also a certain uh, group of customers that we have that are, are, are not looking for an easy way out. They're looking for solving the world's hardest human problems. And so, and whether that is around healthcare or whether it's around food or whether it is about identity or whether it's about conservation, there's all these different areas where people are actually trying to solve really hard problems and at the same time build a successful business with it as well. 
And so, and, and whether that is identity for small farmers in Indonesia, or whether it is uh, healthcare in Brazil, uh, or whether it is keeping uh, rhinos alive in South Africa, all of these companies are trying to solve very hard problems, where most of the problems are external. Yeah, they're, they're part of society, and they try to add to it to really solve some of these really hard problems. Well, let's let's talk about that because I mean, if we look at that that first episode, it was it was not where I think you know most people would expect you to be in a, in an office building or in a in a tech park <laughs> or what have you. you. You're in a rice field outside of Jakarta in Indonesia, with some farmers and a startup called Harotoken. I mean, this is a fascinating place to start. What what brought you there? Uh, I don't know. I've I've um, I think um, there's especially Southeast Asia or uh, has a lot of challenges. I mean, the, 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 the have and have nots, and they mostly speak about sort of the digital have and have nots, are that there's big, big um, disparity between them. Um, and then I had already heard of, um, of Hara, uh, mostly because they also run the, um, the blockchain hub for Indonesia. And, and as such, I was interested in to hear what these guys are doing also because they were using blockchain for this. And I was really curious to see, you know, why this would be a problem where only blockchain would be the right solution for. Mm. Anyway, so it's, um, and so I, I hooked up with these guys. And yes, we had, uh, we had lots of recordings in their offices as well and, and drawings and things like that. But the most important thing was to actually go out and see what they are doing for these farmers. Now, let me, let me first explain the problem. So there is a small holder farms in, uh, in Indonesia are really small. Yeah, and, so, and most of these farmers, they don't have an identity. They've never been registered anywhere, which means that to, to buy their next uh, uh, seeds, they actually need to go to a loan shark because they have no identity. They can't go to a bank. And so these loan sharks will easily charge 50 to 60%. And so as such, they basically mortgage their crop already before it even has been planted. And so by giving them an identity by and also at the same time measuring the size of the land uh, periodically coming back measuring the yield of the land now suddenly there's data available about this small farm that every bank and every government institution wants to get their hands off such that they can provide the right support but before that it didn't exist so now they can go to a bank and actually get a loan to get their seeds at, at a fraction of the percentage. And uh, the things we hear from the banks is all these farmers pay their loans back. It's a 100% repayment wow. rate. We're wow. not, by the way, we're not, talk, we're not talking here about thousands of dollars, of course. We're talking here about $100 or, or something like that, like that. And such, um, and, and by actually having this whole, let's say, ecosystem built uh, around it, now suddenly these farmers, uh, you know, can actually help their kids go to school because now they're registered. And, and all these things can happen because suddenly uh, these people that were not known have an identity. And and knowing this, and by the way, there's, there's another episode and that, that's one not public yet. It's the one in, uh, um, in the Philippines mm. where we met up with the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team. Uh, basically, uh, we know OpenStreetMaps runs on AWS, of course. Um, you know, that's a public uh, open source uh, data of, of buildings and roads and things like that. Now, it turns out that most of the commercial mappings uh, systems that we have them, that we use at a daily basis, do not map areas that are not commercially interesting. 
Ja, it's really out in the in the, in the woods where there are no where there is no real shops or things like that or no big shops. Basically, commercial uh, mapping uh, companies don't care. And so, but in case of disasters, and Philippines is a good example of that because there's typhoons and there's earthquakes and there's volcanoes erupting all the time. You need to know where all the buildings are, where all the roads are. And especially during days when there might be a big disaster happening, the road may no longer be there. Yeah, yeah. And so the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team has layered, has put a layer on top of this um, with all that information done by by crowdsourced by by, by volunteers. And that is being used by both the government, is being used as the main source of information for the Red Cross and all these other organizations as well. So here again, you know, if you're not knowing, if people don't know where you live, they can't help you. And apparently, you know, maps play a very important role in that. If you're not on the map, you can't be helped. And given that most of the maps are only created for commercial purposes, instead of humanitarian ones, the, the, the things that these uh, that the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team is doing is crucial because other people cannot be helped. Again, if you're not being seen, you can't be helped. Can't be the helped. same goes... Yeah. With the Hera token one, if you don't have an identity, you can't get help. And it's it's a, it's apparent that, that that first segment really had an impact on you because it, it sort of set the tone in terms of some of the other episodes that 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 are coming later in terms of the the engagements you're having those domains you're looking into. Um, absolutely, absolutely, and you know some of them are are massively more more techy. Um, uh, I'd like to, to uh, the example of the the, the big pens in the in a Norwegian shorts with 200,000 salmon in it. That was mind boggling. <laughs> really, really. You know, and, and so uh, it's, it's, but then you hear the problem and the problem is that we can't grow protein fast enough to serve the world's population. In, in the traditional way. And so with these massive pens in this Norwegian fjord, it actually turns out to be the most effective way of growing protein. <laughs> because one kilo of fish feed results in one kilo of fish. Wow. Yeah, in an extremely efficient way. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you need to track them, you need to track diseases, because suddenly with 200,000 salmon in one place, uh, there's all sorts of other problems that that arriving, and I think this is also something that we've tried to do in a number of these episodes, in in getting people in. And in this particular case, it was one of the uh, professors of the uh, uh, of the university there that you know also gives a different perspective on it. It's not all glorious. Yeah, for example, yeah. with the, the salmon, it's that there's, there's diseases and things like that happening, but the wild salmon that actually pass through there then also pick up those diseases. And so there's an up and down, there's a back and forth, and we, we try to really tell a balanced story there. Well, things are, things are complicated. Well, another example is the, the India episode, which is about preserving millennia-old art forms, and it's kind of counterintuitive to think about cloud playing a role there. So what was the, what was the angle there? Ah, yeah. So, so the story there, this is Wendy, and it's, um, it's a, a young uh, startup out of um, Bangalore, and so there are literally thousands of different art forms in India that are very traditional and people really like them. You know, that goes from puppetry all the way to to, to door signs or whatever, in beautiful drawn or painted um, uh, pictures. Um, the problem is that none of these artists have any idea about tech. 
And so what Trendy has done is what I would call a cloud for artists. Basically, the biggest challenges for them is, of course, you know, customer acquisition, because these artists have no idea how to do that online. And the, let's say, the convenience, the shipping part of it. So what the artists only have to do is to create their piece of art. And, um, you know, Swendy takes care of customer acquisition. Swendy also comes to pick up the piece of art and make sure it gets shipped to the customers in a predictable way. So these artists don't have to do anything. They just can focus on it. And then they've added something else to it. And the add to it is that uh, many of the younger people in uh, in India, the, the millennials and things like that, they really like the old art, but they would like it on modern uh, uh, textures, let's yeah. say on your laptop bag yeah. or on your coffee cup or whatever. And now suddenly, so they, they bring designers in to work with these artists to make sure that their art is applicable to many more materials. And so suddenly the whole world opens up for these artists. And for example, in in one of the, in one part of the episodes, I talked to this woman who's the who's a beautiful painter, and um, she used to be an accountant, and always did this sort of on the side. But mm-hmm. because Wendy now actually takes care of a, of a pipeline of work that comes towards her, um, she gave up her job as an accountant and became a full time artist. And so there's there's lots of these uh, interesting things to 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 that you run into. There are, there are. And, yeah, and we've had good fun there. It, it's, it's, um, it's always interesting. Uh, there's always so much background as, as well. Well, that's the thing is, it's, it's, the, it's the stuff you learn around it that's really interesting. I think you, you're in Japan at the beginning of the year, and you were looking at how lack of caregivers to, to help take care of Japan's aging population is a challenge, and that there are lots of technologies they're trying to apply. What did you see there? Because that's, that's clearly a problem that's going to happen in a lot of countries in the future. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, you often can look at Japan of the, because it's sort of given the structure of the society, often um, do, do you see them, do you see problems or solutions happening in Japan that other countries still have to, uh, have to, uh, the wall that other countries still have to run into on that. Uh, mm-hmm. In this particular case, um, Japan is unique because it has the highest life expectancy of the world, 80, close to 85 years wow. on, on average. Wow. Also, culturally, in Japan, it has always been the family that takes care of the elderly people. However, currently, you know, with, with many more young people looking for a career instead of looking after family, these things are becoming a challenge. There is no more family available for you to, um, to actually help you grow old. And so there's also technology solutions there where people are looking for, well, how can we use technology to help? And, and in one thing, for example, is is uh, there's one company, ZWorks, uh, that has built all these these uh, sensors um, uh, that can be placed in in a people in in a room if people are in a in a care facility or something like that, where they can, for example, exactly measure the pressures on your back if you have to if you're bedridden for a longer time, or you know how often people can get up, or people get up from their bed to go to the bathroom but they don't return anymore. Mm. Yeah, and so all these kind of things that seem like very simple things, but you know, you can start LD tech technology to all these different uh, challenges, and actually make lives for for people much much better. Oh, definitely. Now, now Verna, you get to talk to builders of uh, of every kind. You you see them launching startups, super large companies. What what do you take from them in terms of your own inspiration? Oh, they all love AWS. <laughs> now, no one ever complains to you about any Absolutely. service ever. Yeah, no, there's nobody. I've, I've, 
Uh, I've, I've had more complaints about that we do too much than that we're not doing enough. <laughs> yeah, and so it's too hard to keep up. <laughs> no, I, I think I, I think you know it's it's no, but also you know especially when you when you run into let's say builders that are um, that have been around the block a few times. And, and that have worked in, in other situations, whether it was on-premise or with outsourcers or things like that. People enjoy, uh, let's say, the building blocks. And and so, yeah, if I think one of the inspirations to continue on the path where we're on is that the decision that we made early on not to build everything in the kitchen sink and tell our customers, this is how you shall develop software. Yeah, yeah. But by giving this massive toolbox with all the different tools in there, and people really enjoy that. The whole world about purpose-built databases, people really, really enjoy, builders really enjoy having exactly the right tool at their hands to drop in there. You need a graph, you need to get keep some graph, take Neptune, you drop it in there. You don't have to figure out how to do that in MySQL. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. and so I, I think um, the fact that we've built this and that we've taken this, uh, this bet, basically, because that was we thought it was, working out really well so that customers can build exactly the things that they want to build that really motivates me yeah i could can, I, I can imagine and i think uh, it's often a combination of um of sort of uh, awestruck when you when you sort of come to aws fresh and see all these 175 plus services but then there is a joy when you start to use individual components particularly if you've done work before and you go well this used to take me days, months, years in some cases, and, and it just happens. I, I was talking to my team just uh, just today about multi-AZ RDS and the fact that what we do with a, with a click uh, it used to take me six months to get up and running with, you know, dense wave division, multiplexing and dark fiber and replication and storage arrays. It's just, it's it's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially there, uh, uh, if you would have to run your own, let's say, primary backup, you know, and then you know you can automate the failover, mm. and then you have to co- you have to still go in and manually move, promote things and stuff like that. All of that stuff is magically taken away. You know, it's it's uh, the fact that that has happened and that the things that we were betting on in the early days or believed strongly believed in the early days that that was how software development was going to happen in the future. Um, very happy to see that become reality. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's humbling. Now, as as a builder yourself. What would you tell others who are sort of sitting out there and, and thinking about an idea or they're wondering, should they go make it real? Like, you know, that you've got that idea, you're sort of thinking about it. What's your advice to them? Just do it. Just build. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, build? I think there's two, two, two things. You know, never go build. Yeah, that, that's a reason for that one. Go learn and go build. Yeah, yeah, I think those yeah. two things are, are, are in, in important. My advice is always, first of all, whether it's whether you're an enterprise or whether you're the youngest startup with a new brilliant idea, security should be your number one priority. Mm-hmm. So please, before you do anything else, you know, read yourself into the AWS security tools, because this is something you need to do from day one. Yeah, because retrofitting security into an existing application is a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. And so really I urge everyone. You know, please take a look at, uh, please make sure that you take security into account from day one. And I know you're a young startup and I know you want to have your engineers work on things that really matter as a product, but without proper security, you don't have a product. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's one thing that I've always tried to motivate people. And it's not a cool say, yeah, but who cares about my data? Uh, I mean, well, you know, your data plus someone else's data and a third party data suddenly makes a very valuable data set. And plus you have a responsibility towards your customers and your business to protect it. Anyway, that's that's one thing. The other hand, just get started. Yeah, and yeah. just just do something, just build. And if you're in an enterprise, I've always given the advice to uh, whether it's uh, you know a line manager or or the engineers or whatever. The first thing that you should do, go look for something in your organization that, if it is successful, it's going to have a significant impact on on your company. Uh, for example, uh, I met with uh, in Singapore with a large shipping company. And they wanted to do one of wanted to start with some proof of concept, and instead of doing something, they picked the, the problem they had. They didn't know where all the empty containers were. Well, they did know, but it was sitting in six different databases and and obscured and and whatever. And so these engineers get started, start making use of AWS, get the information in, do the analytics stuff like that, and and within three months, they actually saved the company twenty million dollars. Yeah, and and so because they picked a problem that actually was material for the company, but nobody had ever touched it, and so it turned out they were fifty percent overscaled in terms of their containers because they really knew where they were. And so this is these are these kind of things that by just get started, and if you're if you're in an enterprise world, for example, really start tackling a problem that if you succeed in it, you know everybody will be. Uh, You'll be happy for it. Lots of pets on the back. Now, now you said something in there that, that really ties us back to the start, which I think is important, which you said, learn and go build. And and I think the learning is important. And I remember there was a while ago you, you were doing, I think it was an, an one academic paper a week. Uh, you're really, you're, you're going back to your sort of your, your academic heritage and saying, I'm going to do a lit review and learn from what we already know, which I think is a great, it's so obvious, but so, you know, empowering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was also in, the, in a time when I felt that, um, Especially within within Amazon, we needed to uh, we needed to beef up our, our culture in reading uh, reading about other people's work, yeah, and especially yeah. in the academic world. There's there's one challenge I think that uh, I've seen that engineers always had is that academics can't agree among themselves, and so they will write competing papers. Yeah, there's someone that says, oh, you should do consensus in this way, or you should do consensus in this way. No, this is the best way. And so for engineers, it's actually pretty hard to read four or five of these papers and then make a decision, which which one do we go? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, of course, on AWS, you can always experiment and try things out. But one of the lessons there that that I have learned is that uh, the paper or the the, poly, the the methodology that makes the least assumptions is probably the ones the one that you most likely be able to implement. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of oh, oh, oh comes razor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those, it's it's really the one that makes no assumptions at all is probably the one that's going to be most successful. It's very true. It's it's like that cartoon you've, you've probably seen it many times as well where. There's a whole schematic diagram in the middle. There's a big box that says now, then a miracle occurs. It's kind of like <laughs> you know, nothing good's going to happen. Werner, yeah. <laughs> yeah. thanks again for, for joining us. It's always a pleasure and we look forward to having you sampling Melbourne coffee sooner rather than later.
I will certainly try to. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. And make sure you uh, you check out the, uh, the 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 show. It's it's a tremendous one. It's uh, now go build. You'll find it anywhere. Uh, it's a beautiful, like I said, beautifully shot, but really fascinating stories. Some very technical ones. A lot about society. It's really great. And we do love to get your feedback. AWS Podcast at Amazon.com is the place to do that. And until next time, keep on building. <laughs>